hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. And today I am so excited to bring a longtime friend to you because I have been so eager to have Dr. Michael Seitzma on this show to have this very conversation. I wanted to have him in season one, but I thought, you know what? I want to have him as the first guest in season two, just to call more attention to this particular episode, because I've asked him to talk about the main topic that I think is probably the biggest issue when it comes to what couples bring to the table when they're working with their marriage therapist or sex therapist, and that is desire discrepancy. So Michael, thank you so much for being willing to come on and have this conversation with us. Thank you. It is long overdue for us to do something like this. I'm so um, honored to be a part. I love what you're doing. You Uh, bet. Well, I was honored to be a part of a class that you taught many moons ago called Intro to Human Sexuality. And I'm going to be honest, when Dr. Doug Rosenau asked me to come and sit in on that class, I was kind of thinking, I took Intro to Human Sexuality years ago, Doug. Like, why do you want me to sit in on this class? He knew. He knew that I would have my mind blown by you, and indeed I did, and so I know that you're going to blow everybody's minds today, and so what got you into this field, Michael? Why are you equally as passionate about helping couples with their sex life? Yeah, um, you know, this is not the kind of thing that I started off in my career saying I'm going to become a a sex therapist. Um, My care and concern has been for where people are hurting and it's always been to bring, um, bring the message of truth into where people are hurting. Uh, and that's taken a variety of forms through my life. I, I worked with drug addictions for a while, helping um, counsel addicts inpatient. Um, I pastored for quite a while, worked in starting churches, I worked, ran an inpatient psychiatric center for trauma victims, uh, and fell in love with doing marriage work. And when you start working with marriages, it doesn't take very long before you realize that most of the couples are dealing with a high level of tension and pain in the sexual part of their relationship. And there just weren't very many people who are giving information that I thought was well-grounded in truth, that was grounded in the research, that was grounded in a biblical truth that was, that was solid and helped in couples. So I began to seek that out and to see what was there. Uh, eventually growing into working with couples and so honored when they invite me into that arena. And I tell them it's it's not about helping you to have a great sex life. It's about what does it take for you to grow up, to to lean in and to learn how to be the kind of person that that draws your spouse, that seduces them in and and helps you to be your best as a couple and as an individual. And it's just such a reward now. To, to be in this field. Not what I would ever thought I would be doing, but, but I love doing it. I love watching the transformation in people. See, already I know that some people are thinking, wait a minute, he has a theology background and he just used the word seducing in a positive context. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, I grew up in a really conservative Christian church and still hold strongly to a lot of those beliefs. But um, helping, helping the truth to be practical. Um, I don't know of another place that it's more important and more real to do it than in the sexual part of our relationship. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, when you said that you wanted to be available to people for where they're hurting, 
sex, I think is definitely one of the most painful places. And it's something that they don't feel as if they can talk to very many people about, but this is how you make your living talking to people about all things sexual. So am I correct in my assumption that desire discrepancy is probably one of the biggest tension creators? Actually, more than that, it is the biggest. Um, when we look at the research across the board and you talk to uh, leaders in the field, um, we're all consistent that it is the number one problem, uh, number one sexual problem that brings couples into marriage and family therapists, into sex therapists, is desire discrepancy or concerns about um, is my desire normal? Is my desire pathologically too high? Is my desire too low? Is my spouse's too high, too low? A lot of confusion, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of anger and hurt around it. So definitely it's the number one issue, which is why it became the, the topic of my doctoral dissertation. Um, I thought, you know, we should be able to figure this out. Let me spend six and a half years studying it and researching it um, to see what we can't come up with. And, and, and that was in 2004, and I haven't stopped researching it since. So unpack that thesis for us a little bit. What, what did you learn through all of that research? And you know, it was funny, Shannon. I went into it thinking, okay, I'm not a stupid individual. I should be able to figure this out. And um, I started with, I bought a big piece of whiteboard to hang up in um, the basement where um, my family, the house that we lived in. And I began to draw on it what we knew from the field. And um, it got so complex in trying to figure out what even raises and lowers sexual desire, what causes desire to be high, what causes it to be low, that it very quickly reached a point of, we don't know, we, we can't figure it out. And I tell couples, um, you know, the, they'll often come into my office and say, we're here because you need to fix my husband. Um, you, we're here because you need to fix my wife. Or a wife will come in and say, I'm here to see you because my husband said I need to be fixed. I don't want sex enough. Um, I had one husband say, is there not some kind of cream we can slap between my wife's legs so she'll want me more? <laughs> I think I understand what needs to be slapped. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not your wife's size. <laughs> oh, but they come in, I mean, he is truly hurting. He, he is saying, I want my wife to desire me more. She is struggling because she doesn't understand what's going on. And they're looking for a silver bullet. They're looking for a cream that can be used. They're looking for a shot or a pill. They're looking for something that will make it better. And I, and I look at them and say, sexual desire is too complex. And that's the, that's the first thing that I learned. It is way too complex for us to have a simple answer to how to move desire. We don't understand how to move intensity. Uh, why some people have too high of desire and create so much damage with it. We, we don't understand how to drop it. We don't understand why people have such low desire and how to increase it. We can't seem to move the intensity, nor can we move the direction. Wives that come in and say, you know, my husband is an amazing man. He's a phenomenal dad. He's a great husband. And I just don't desire him. Um, how do I desire him? We, we don't know how to do that. We don't know why some people are attracted to same sex, opposite sex, to objects, to certain behaviors, we, and we don't know how to change that. So desire in and of itself, we don't understand. We don't know how to adjust it. Um, and 
when a couple comes in, it's a six legged table. There are six different things, maybe eight, that are helping to keep the desire where it is, whether that's too high or too low. Or, and if we go in and we figure out a couple of them and try to remove it, there's still table legs that are left. Right. Some people will come in and say, you know, we're here because my, my husband was molested when he was a child or my wife was raped when she was a teenager and that's why they don't want sex. And I think, well, that may be a pedestal in the middle, but there are still six other legs holding that in place. Right. And just removing the one isn't going to change it. Right. And, one layer of the onion. Yeah. And the problem is, Shannon, a couple start to, to conflict about it often early in the relationship or after the first child is, you know, a common time for, and it blows up and they argue and they don't want to argue. So they stop talking about it. And they'll go three months and not talk about it. But during that time, the, the sexual frequency is decreased because they did some damage. And eventually it comes up again and they blow up again. And then the, de the frequency decreases again and they avoid it for another three months. And that process continues until they show up into our office and, and they're not, they don't have a healthy sex life any longer and they don't even know how to talk about it because every time they try to there's guilt and shame and anger and frustration and disappointment and it blows up and, and it just gets icky. And so it creates a, a big ball of mess that we step in and, and work to unravel for couples. So in the last episode, Michael, uh, Michelle and I talked about how much judgment there is, not just in the larger circles of when external sexual scandals are happening, but that that conditioned response to anything sexually out of the norm bleeds over into our marriages and even in the way that we parent and even in how we look at ourselves sexually. So would you say that in addition to the desire discrepancy, the judgment of the other person for not having the same types or levels of desire that they themselves do is another layer of it? Well, actually, Shannon, it's more powerful than that because the main thing that I took from the dissertation was what we call an attribution error that how we view our spouse is more damaging than what's going on. Um, in other words, Can you say that again? I thought that the higher the desire, the more pain there would be in a marriage. And we didn't find that. Now, to be fair, nobody in my sample, I had 150 couples from across the nation. Nobody in my sample uh, wanted sex more than uh, twice a day. If it got higher than that, I could see that there might be some pain, but the high desire person didn't cause the pain in the, the marriage. So then it made sense to me that it must be the low desire person. The lower their desire, the more pain there is in the marriage. And what I found is that was partially true, but it only predicted a small amount of the pain, about 8% of the variance um, to, for technical. But so if it's not how high the high desire is or how low the low desire is, what is it? And what I found is that the pain in the relationship is predicted by what the high desire person believes about the low desire. Now to put that simple, if I, if I set my, uh, my wife and I as a, um, a stereotypical couple where I have the high desire and she has the lower desire, um, it's not about how the pain in their marriage isn't because of how high my desire is. It's only a little bit about how low her desire is. The biggest predictor of the pain of the distress in the relationship is what I think she wants versus what she knows she wants. Mm -hmm. 
And the way that plays out in my office is I look at a couple and I ask her, if it were totally up to you, what would you feel good about? How often would you like to have sex? And most wives look at me and say, you know, I'd feel really good about one to two times a week. And I look at the husband and I say, how often do you think your wife would like to have sex? And he goes, never. I'm sorry, there's a big difference between never and twice a week. I have to totally echo that. How many times I have had to listen to a husband unpack his disgruntlement over how little sex they have only to learn a few paragraphs later that they actually do have sex frequently according to her. And it's like, wait a minute, it's either you're not having enough sex or you, but I think that there's a quality versus quantity issue in that assessment. Don't you think? Um, There is. And many times what he's saying is I, I would like for her to have more of what we would call an initiating drive. And he doesn't understand that for most women, um, sexual desire is receptive, that they have to be aroused before the desire kicks into their brain. And he, you know, he's been thinking about having sex with her several times throughout the course of the day. And he's frustrated that she's not. And it's a bit of teaching to help him and her to understand that's not how she works. For most women, it's, well, yeah, we could do that. And they begin to engage in a few minutes into it when they start to get aroused. That's when their brain kicks in the desire. Um, It doesn't happen before. Um, And he wants her to step into it going, I can't believe you waited this long to ask. I've been thinking about you naked all day long. Mm -hmm. And when she doesn't do that, he's hurt and wounded. Um, So some of it is teaching them that desire for men and women is a little different. And do you think that the storyline of she must not want me, there must be something wrong with me, there's probably something wrong with her, but she thinks there's something wrong with me that she's not chasing me. Do you think that men tell themselves that story over and over? You know, men want to be at our core. We want to be adored. We want to be chosen. We want to be pursued. Um, And when she doesn't pursue us in the way that we want to pursue her, we often misunderstand that. But that goes the other way, too. You know, there there are um, about 20% of couples where she's the high drive individual in the relationship and the husband is the lower desire. And in those relationships, the same thing happens is the wife comes in and sits down and says, he either doesn't like my body, he's having an affair or looking at porn, he's getting it someplace else. Um, or, you know, they, they begin to vilify their husband or themselves rather than lean in and try to understand what is your desire and what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought up the higher desire wives because I already knew that there was probably a lot of women listening in going, but wait a minute, this yeah. is a very stereotypical approach that it's always the guy who is higher desire and that the woman is the lower desire. What percentage of the time would you say that women are the higher desire? Most of the research that I found for the dissertation and even then the follow-up dissertation points to about 20% of couples where the wife tends to be the higher desire. And if you think about it, that's a lot of couples. That's one in five. So if you think about those people in your circle um, and you start to think one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, and um, I'll have couples sit and go, yeah, they were all laughing about how their husbands are chasing them down. And I laughed along, but I'm sitting there thinking, I wish my husband would chase me down. Exactly. They're so silent, knowing, feeling like they are really the only person in the world 
whose husband doesn't want them and to help them to say, no, that's actually one in five. And um, there are a lot of women that are that way. And most of the time, it's not about her. Um, every once in a while it is, but most of the time it's something that's going on in her husband. So that's what I was going to ask is, is the female response to not being pursued when they are the higher desire partner, is it similar as how men respond when they're not being pursued? Um, for some it is when a wife is not pursuing her husband, it's easy for the husband to say it's a, the wife's issue there's something broken in my wife that she doesn't want sex. I mean, everybody wants sex. My wife doesn't. So something with her, what I tend to see in women when they're the higher desire is they blame themselves too. If my body was different, if my breasts were different, if my stomach was different, if I were, if I were different, my husband would like me and he would pursue me. What's wrong with me that he doesn't want to have sex with me. Exactly. And, and so I, you know, there are plenty of women that say, no, something's wrong with him. But I tend to see more, it's easy for her to blame herself and to figure if she changed, he'd want her. I think that women have been socially conditioned to hold on to far more sexual shame than we need to. It's always something about we don't have the right look or we don't do something, we're not willing to do something that he wants to do or not as adventurous or too adventurous. It's just amazing how women judge themselves so harshly. If, right. especially if she's not being pursued by him. What's behind the low desire male oftentimes? You know, it's the same thing as for women. It's really complex, Shannon. Sometimes um, it's a little bit easier with men. Uh, one of the common things I see is I, he sits across from me and I realize he is working a 70 hour work week and a high stress job. Um, he is eating like crap. He is not sleeping well. He hasn't exercised in months. And, and I look at weight, he's lethargic, <laughs> his stress response is through the roof. And I look and say, you know, if we just think about us as animals, um, an animal is not going to reproduce when they're in a high stress situation because they need the internal resources to be able to, to, to raise up this young, to give birth to the young, to, to feed it, to provide for it. Just the animal part in us it makes sense that it's going to shut down desire. And you are overstressed. You're not taking care of yourself. Of course, you don't have sexual desire. And we get them on a healthier work-life balance. balance. We get eating healthy. Most importantly, they've got to get sleep and exercise. But if they can do the basics that we all need, know what needs to happen, most of those couples come back and, and he's like, my desire has popped back. And she's libido like, libido returns. Yeah, because he's healthier again. And his body says, okay, we have enough energy to reproduce again. Um, so, and many men, it's just helping them to get rebalanced um, and healthy. Some, it, it becomes a physiological issue of um, their testosterone out of place. Or for some, their desire is, is different than their wife. They may have um, some kink or some interest that they have. They may be directing it elsewhere. They may be heavily involved into porn or um, they might be in an affair. Or, um, so there can be a host of reasons that go on for men as well. Um, some, one of the big things I find is guys lose desire when their wives are screamers. You know, she is criticizing everything about him. And, and the guys come in and say, I can't do anything right. Mm -hmm. um, 
she asks me to take care of something and I do it and she comes behind me and tells me how I did it wrong. Um, I can't play with the kids, right? I can't. And he says it, it reaches a point that I have no interest in her because she's always criticizing me. She's always screaming at me. And um, I would think that screaming is an indication of anger. And I've often heard that anger is a boner killer both ways that an angry husband is going to shut a wife down and an angry wife is going to shut a husband down. I tell couples, you know, the penis is a pretty good barometer of what's going on inside. And, and if it's not coming up, then something is keeping it down and we need to figure out what that is. And desire is more complex than that, but often that is a part of it and helping, helping her to be, to be soft and erect. Um, one of the images that I like to use um, is if we think about how the body is designed, I think God gave it to us as an object lesson of what works. And many times I'll look at wives and I'll say, you know, what does it take for your husband to physically be able to engage in sex? Well, he has to be strong and erect. Well, what does it take to get him strong and erect? And most of the time, it's not an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> For, you know, be, be a little bit seductive. Uh, yeah, if you reach over and you stroke him somehow, he is going to get strong and erect. What does it take for his heart to be there, to desire you to? Similar, you stroke his heart. You affirm him. You tell him he's a great guy. You tell him that you love him. He's been beat up by, by life, by work. And he comes home and he gets criticized by you, by what he hasn't done for you. That's going to deflate him. Just like looking at him and say, seriously? That's all the bigger it is, you know, it's going to be tough for him to be strong and erect. Sure. I've heard one client say it this way, that women think that men's penises and hearts are totally disconnected from, from one another and that they're both made of steel and that it's very incorrect. They're both made of flesh and that they have needs. And when a woman ignores those needs, either sexual or emotional, it can be incredibly deflating. Right. And in the reverse, if she is stroking his ego and affirming him, she believes in his heart that can really help him move forward. The, the flip side is also true. What does it take for her to, to be able to engage with her husband sexually? Well, she has to be soft, inviting. She has to be open. Relaxed. And, and I look at many wives and say, you're anything but with your husband. You're so harsh and cold and shut down and critical. What does it take for you to be soft mm. and him and in your spirit? And then I look at the husband and I say, dude, you are not safe. For her to be soft and open right now, that's not wise. That's not smart on her part. Right. So what does it take for you to be soft enough, to be safe enough that she can open up to you? And, and when both of them realize, you know, for her, it's to be soft while encouraging him. For him, it's to be strong and erect and pursue, but in a way that cherishes her heart. Mm -hmm. That's what it takes for our bodies to work. That's what it takes for our hearts to hurt as well, to work as well. I like the analogy of the seesaw, that the further out one partner goes, the further out the other partner has to go to maintain a balance. But if one of them starts moving toward the center, the other one can too and maintain the balance. And it doesn't always work. Just because I do what's right doesn't mean my spouse is going to. Mm -hmm. But if I'm not doing my part, 
then even my spouse does their part, it's not going to work. We both have to step into towards the middle and towards each other, yes. Right. We've done an excellent job giving us an aerial view of what marriage is often like. And I rarely ever meet a couple that are at the exact same spot on the desire level. Like there's always going to be some sort of discrepancy, whether that's one step or 10 steps or a hundred steps. Nobody is at the exact same place all the time. So thank you for helping us understand the multitude of causes that may be behind it. Michael, give us some practical advice for the individuals who are listening to this episode and are thinking, where do I even start? And, 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 and what I want the conversation to focus on is what can they themselves do? Because I think that everybody comes into this type of conversation with their counselor or coach or therapist wanting to know, how can I change my partner? Just tell me how to change my partner when that is so outside of their realm of control. So what can the listener do to make the situation better that's within their power? So if what we learned is true, then most couples are, have more similar desire than what they realize. Hmm. In our testing, we found the same thing. We found that when we asked husbands, what, do you, what would you really like? Most husbands are saying between two and four times a week. When we ask wives, what would you like? Most wives are saying between one and two times a week. And I look at couples and say, I'm sorry, there's not much difference between two and two. <laughs> um, now, there's, there's variance there. Um, and part of what we see is the difference between what wives say is happening and what they desire is not a huge gap versus the difference between what a husband says he desires and what he's getting is a larger gap. So there's greater pain for most husbands. But when we look at what they actually both want versus what they both say they're getting, almost every couple, both husband and wife say, we would like more sex than what we're getting. And they report how much they would like being far more similar than they realize. And so the, the takeaway is, sit down and have a conversation with your spouse, a curious conversation, not a critical, not a condemning, but a curious conversation where you say, you know, I heard this podcast and they were saying that couples actually don't understand how often the other really wants sex. I'm thinking you want it six times a day. And he goes, well, that'd be a lot of fun, but I'd be really content with two to three times a week that shifts her mindset. Or he looks at her and he says, I, I hear that most wives really, if the relationship is going well, would be good with sex more than I think. What, what would you really like? Mm. And if they can lean in and truly be curious, what I experience couples doing next is, wait, if that's what you want, why is it not happening? And I tell them, that's the question to ask. That's right. the question. So when you, when you lean in and you start getting curious, then you can step back and go, okay, how can I begin to help us to move towards it? What is the role here? Because anytime you're stuck and the only way it can get better is if your partner changes, you put yourself in a victim stance. Oh yeah. And the victim stance never works for us because we resent you and I resent me for being in this place and it gets icky. Or if I lean in and get curious, what do you really like? What would you want? And then I start to figure out how I can move us towards that center. And now I'm not a victim any longer. I have some power. I might not get all of what I want, 
-hmm. but at least I'm making some change. Well, and I want to speak up uh, to encourage the lower desire partner to suspend your judgment when the higher desire partner tries to have these investigative discussions, asks these curious questions, because I know that the lower desire partner is usually going, well, you're only asking that because you're trying to get my pants. How can you help the lower desire person understand what that conversation is really all about? Well, sometimes, unfortunately, their assessment is correct. You know, this is <laughs> if, um, one, one more manipulative attempt, but again, they're still not a victim there. It, it, let's say that the husband is trying to do it as a manipulative attempt to try to, what is he actually asking for? Is he asking just for sex or is he saying, I want to be more connected with you as my wife? And I like you. The time, yeah. Most of the time he is saying, I want to be connected to you and I know what connects me to you. If we have sex, I am fully connected to you. Mm -hmm. 15 minutes from now, I could be fully connected to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's craving. But she hears, he just wants to use her. And okay, you're right. That doesn't feel good. Can you lean in and hear what his heart is asking for? Right. Even if his skill is bad, his heart can be good. Right. And same the other way. If he feels like she's being manipulative, well, towards what end? She probably just wants to connect. She wants to know that you choose her. All the women in the whole wide world, you choose her. That's not a bad request. So can you lean into it and hear what their heart's asking for? Maybe her skill is not all that good, but her heart is looking for something good. Can you get on board with what her heart's asking for? Right. Hear it as a compliment. Hear it as an invitation, not a threat. Uh, another expression that I often hear women use is, well, if I give him an inch, he's going to want to take a mile. And so they just refuse to even give him a centimeter. Yeah. What do you say to the person who has just really dug their heels in so deeply that they have carved out a nice little rut for themselves? I often look at them and say, do you like being there? You know, do you like <laughs> that you've got yourself into? Well, I don't have another choice. Actually, you do. You do. I've heard that a rut is a grave with the ends kicked out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and go ahead and climb back out of that. Do something different. Um, you know, from on a podcast, looking at a varied group of people, I can't tell you what's going to work in your marriage, but I can tell you what you're currently doing isn't working. Can you step in and try something different? Can you try to lean in? So you lean in and he, you have sex with him that evening and then you're irritated that he rolls over the next morning and says more, you know, he enjoyed you. He loved connecting with you. Can you hear that? And it's okay to lean in, give him a kiss and say, yeah, give me a, give me a, yeah, I something you can look forward to. You are an amazing lover. Can we save up some for it later? And so yeah. lean into it and affirm him and, and then pick a time that he can begin looking forward to shifting into that. I'm going to lock my heels down um, because this isn't how I want it to be you put yourself in a bad spot. So right. And I think of the woman who goes all out to cook a really nice meal. Someone who asks for seconds is giving you the biggest compliment in the world. So asking for seconds sexually, take that as a compliment. And it doesn't mean you have to respond um, with your body. You can respond in affirmation and appreciate it mm -hmm. and continue to move forward. Not, not 
with the brakes on. Yes. Use it to just banter, tease, let it work up to when you're ready again. You can always tap on the brakes without slamming on them really hard. Uh, so especially wives, but also husbands, when your spouse approaches you for sex, it's always, it's always okay to say, we can do that as soon as you touch my heart. Oh. Soften my heart. That will, that will draw me in. You know, figure out how to seduce me into where I want to say yes. Yes. Okay thing to ask for. If we could have some skin to skin, if you can start with my lips, maybe my body will warm up to the idea. Absolutely. So One of my clients said, I, I learned what turns my wife on. I said, really? What? He said, tea. What kind of tea? I'm going to buy stock. And he said, the kind of tea doesn't matter. He says, I fix my wife a cup of hot tea and I put it on the table and I go find her. And I say, come on, I made you a cup of tea. Yeah, that can wait till later. And he said, and I sit her down at the, the, the kitchen table and I put my elbow on the table, my chin and my, my palm, and I lean in and say, how's your day really? And he says, and I play girlfriend for 45 minutes. I truly care for her. He said, because I do care for my wife. And he said, at the end of 45 minutes, she's often dragging me to the bedroom. Yes. Because, and she, she looked up and she says, because my heart was cared for and I've connected with my husband and I want to respond. And, and it's learning how to seduce each other. And, and when we get to that place, it goes much, goes much better. Yeah, it is amazing how if a man will become more verbal in meeting his wife's emotional needs, it will get him so much further because women are stimulated auditorily. Men visually, women auditorily. So yes, learning to speak that language. Okay, Michael, there's one more topic I want to see if you'll touch on because you mentioned it earlier and it's like, yep, I know that that's probably an issue with couples who have a desire discrepancy. You mentioned sometimes it's that the partner wants to do something that the other partner does not feel comfortable with, some sort of kink or some sort of role play or fantasy. That's often a conversation on this show because I highly value the role of fantasy and just getting our brain in gear and triggering that pituitary gland to do what God designed for it to do. What do you say to the couple that that's the reason for their desire discrepancy? Often, I do think that they may need a third party to help them to sort through it because it can get um, pretty intense in trying to talk through it. But what I'm going to do is bring the couple in and help them to start having a conversation about it. Um, it may be that your particular fantasy, your particular interest is really engaging to you but is offensive to your spouse. And that doesn't mean that either of you need to change. It's part of who you are. And again, like we said, we, we don't always, we don't know how to change desire. If your fantasy is towards one particular act, for example, we may not be able to shift it, but it doesn't mean that your fantasy is always going to be fulfilled with your spouse. Right. And you will have to do some grief work. And your spouse may need to be able to see you as a great person who has kind of a weird fantasy that they're not really wild about, but not allow that fantasy to define you. you yes. know, you're not a creepy person because you'd like to do that. And I don't think that sounds fun at all. But when they get to where they can talk openly and respectfully and, and um, do some grief work, do some leaning in work. It doesn't mean that it has to become a part of their marriage, but I think being able to be accepted that this is a fantasy of mine um, allows them to come back together again. 
and even having conversations around it can actually create a lot of energy in a positive direction, not just in a negative direction every time. And so, yeah, I've said it many times, sex is weird and we all have our own penchant and it, that, that was created for us in our childhood. That was not something that we chose in our adulthood. So your mate is not just looking to offend you or gross you out. They're just looking to connect with you in the most authentic way that they know. And this is a part of who they are. You said it very eloquently. So Michael, I wanna wrap up with this concept. And then I wanna ask you to please share about some resources that you have available, books that you've written, how people can get in touch with you. Um, I know that you were a master at opening lines of communication around so many different things in that human sexuality class. And to think that I was sitting in that class with about 30 other people and none of us had ever laid eyes on each other. And before the first night was even over, we were talking about some really deep sexual stuff. If a room full of strangers can do that with the help of a professor, imagine what kind of help he can provide a couple as a professional just there to mediate between the two of you. So thank you for your passion for this area of ministry. You are right. It is where people are hurting and you are one of the master healers. And I feel so honored to call you not just colleague, but friend. So thank you for being on Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and Friends. Where would you send people to learn more about you and your resources? Um, IntimateMarriage.org is the website for the practice. Um, we have some try this at home exercises that they can find there. Um, we have some resources that they can find. I have an entire workshop that I do for couples, the Passion and Intimacy Workshop, that they can um, work through online. And I encourage couples to sit down and walk through that together. It's six to eight hours of of teaching on helping them to enrich the sexual part of their relationship. Um, there's uh, other books that are listed on there. Um, the Sexual Intimacy in Marriage that I did with um, Bill Couture and Sandrick Blond, um, and a few chapters that are there that can help couples get started. Excellent. And the website again? IntimateMarriage.org. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you again for the time that you've spent with us. Thank you listeners for the time that you have spent with us. This has been yet another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. If you think of it, please go back and leave us a five-star rating. That just helps people find our show so that we can spread the word about healthy intimacy. God bless you guys for listening.